0: Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital for the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. morning, everybody. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians together. I am going to do my best. I'm going to try to speak directly to the camera today, to you. Uh, the last couple times I've recorded, I've had the privilege of looking at uh, Danny Wilkin and maybe one or two of our elders, Matt Shellhart. They've been helping us out as we're recording here. But I'm going to do my best. Of course, I'm not be distracted by the plates, um, but I'm going to try my best to look at you and preach to those who are listening. So let's go ahead and we'll read our passage today. Um, and then we'll pray. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray together. Our God, our help in ages past, you are our only hope for eternity to come. We find ourselves fragile and small in these times. When we look to one another, we we see weakness. We are not mighty, but you, Lord, are strong, mighty to save, both from physical harm and from spiritual destruction. We look to you to be our shelter in the midst of this storm, and we praise you for your perfect care and providence. As we open your word, Lord, would you soften our hard hearts Would you give us the comfort in Christ that we so desperately need? Would you give us humility? And uh, would you help us to receive these good gifts from you with thanksgiving? Change us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are three weeks into this thing. I am calling it the Great Separation. Uh, I think that'll catch on. Uh, That's pretty good. Um, If I've learned anything so far, though, from this, It's that sometimes I expect things to always be a certain way. I often think that things will just carry on the way that they've always been. And uh, I realize that I take a lot of things for granted. The coronavirus has uh, made all of us rethink what is normal and what kind of things we can actually practically depend on from day to day. And when it really comes down to it, we have to rethink everything as though it might not be there tomorrow or the next week or the next year. In this way, I think we have potentially assumed that good things just keep on happening in the world around us and that they will continue that way. We've taken God's common grace for granted. As I've been studying these three verses this week, 4, 5, and 6, I've come to find myself taking not only common grace, but also special grace or God's saving grace for granted. And it's opened my eyes that this is a reality for me and that I have taken it this way. And as I've come face to face with my own sin this week, over and over again, my failures as a father, as a husband, sins against my wife and my kids and friends, sins in my own heart, um, those of anxiety or jealousy or anger or pride or lust, as I've come face to face with my own sin this week, uh, I realize that I need God to do something about it. That I I can't do anything about it. I can't atone for it. I can't make it right. I need Him to do something in me that I cannot do myself. I need forgiveness. I need strength. I need renewal and compassion. I need Him to give me every spiritual blessing. And I know that I can do nothing to deserve it. I need God to pour out His grace on me, a sinner. If I am ever to survive as a Christian in this world of sin, trying to mortify the sins of the body, trying to live unto God, I need the undeserved, unmerited favor, the unmerited blessing and favor from God himself. I need him to give to me. I can't earn it. And as I open up the word this week, guess what I found? Grace. I found it. Today we will be looking at God in this light. Today we will see God is the very fountain of grace. And because of it, we are happy. Today's message is all about the nature of God's blessing. His gift-giving, His blessing is not contingent upon our meeting Him halfway. Or even like a millionth of the way. There's absolutely no synergy that comes into play here. It is contingent upon his sovereign hand of blessing and that hand of blessing alone. Today we come face to face with the reality that God has chosen us. Let's start by reading these verses again before we jump into the content. If you remember this, uh, what we talked about last week, Verses 3 through 14 is one big run on Greek sentence. And verse 3 is kind of this title statement or a a summary of all of what's to come here in this praise to God. But then verses 4 through 14, Paul outlines salvation history through four points. He gives us four major ways that God has blessed his people. He chose them, they have received redemption, they have obtained an inheritance. And they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And last week we took uh, and we showed the outline of this and then we talked through that summary statement in verse 3. Today we are going to examine the first part of Paul's presentation of salvation history. God's election or choosing of his people. So let's read it again starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now we ask, what are those spiritual blessings that you're talking about, Paul? Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul begins to explain what he means by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's go ahead and start actually with the first phrase. We want to start, go forward a little bit, before the foundations of the world. He goes back in time where there was no earth, before creation, Before time existed as we know it, he goes back to a time before any human being has ever lived, has ever acted, has ever sinned, before any human being has ever believed. None of that has happened yet. He goes back to God and God alone and shows us how God's eternal plans were set on blessing his people from the very beginning. This was not then a reactionary decision. It wasn't God reacting to something that was going on. This was not God being one of those creative types who makes his thing and sets it loose, watching to see what it would do. And then as it kind of goes off the rails, oh, he kind of corrects it a little bit with his plan and he brings it back. That's not what's going on here. It wasn't that God was like a quarterback who uh, sets his play in motion, he sets it up, But then as the play starts to develop, he has to call an audible last minute because the opposite team does something different and his team isn't doing the things according to plan. No, 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 no. This was not plan B. This was set in eternity past. We are experiencing the fruits of that election. But Paul is helping us look back and understand that this is no accident or reaction. Paul is preaching to us the way that God blesses us, that the action that he is about to discuss, choosing, or election, has happened before the foundations of the world. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, let's break that down a little bit. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, we've already talked about that last part, before the foundation of the world, but let's just make sure we understand these parts together. Who is he that's doing the choosing? And what does it mean that he chose? Well, simply as we're reading along here, he is the person that Paul was praising in verse 3. It is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the subject of the whole plan. But that does not mean that the other persons of the Trinity are somehow uninvolved now. Quite the contrary. We actually saw that from the beginning verses and the statement in verse 3 that the Father Son, and the Holy Spirit are intimately involved in the plan and execution of the salvation of his people. But here we see that it was God the Father who chose. Now how about this word choose or chose? Is it some sort of secret Greek word that means something different from the way that we use choose? No, it means he chose. It's that he selected. He picked out a people for himself. There's nothing about hatred or ill feelings for the others, only the simple language of choosing for himself. This means that the rest of the modifiers and the subordinate clauses that follow up will help us understand the nature of this choosing. So we need to keep reading. He chose us. Who is us? Well, very simply, it's Paul and his intended audience, the church. From verse 1, we know that this is the saints and the ones who believe, or the faithful in Christ Jesus, in Ephesus. We understand that it is us, the church, those who trust and love Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The grammar is super clear. The direct object of the verb is us. He chose us. Now, the same may seem very obvious, but it's extremely important for us here as we move along and start asking questions about the nature of this election and how we understand and respond in real time. In short, God chose Christians. God chose the church. But we now come to one of the most unique and important statements in our passage. Paul says that he chose us in If we are following along so far, uh, it's pretty easy to understand he chose us. But we are wondering what Paul means when he says he chose us in him. In him meaning, of course, in Christ. He's referring to Christ here and he will continue to do so over and over again throughout this context. He chose us in him. Why does Paul add this little clarification? Couldn't he just have said he chose us? Well, no even God's choosing of us, must be in Christ. In Him, He must apply the righteousness of Christ to those that He chooses. When? When did this happen? How did this all take place? At what point in time did He apply the righteousness of Christ in the election process? I I don't know. I don't have all the answers here. I can't explain how all this happens. But Paul is trying to help us understand that God's choosing of his people is not separate from Jesus Christ and his atoning work. His people cannot be chosen separate from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. To be frank, we always need Jesus, and we have always needed Jesus. In every step of redemption, we are seeing the importance of our union with Christ. Now, over the next few months, you're going to hear me use that term a lot, union with Christ. That's because it's the way that helps us describe what Paul is saying when he says, in Christ, in Him, through Christ, through Him, in whom, or in the Beloved, etc. Our union with Christ is the crux of the blessing that the Spirit works in His people. It is at the heart of God's giving to his people that we would be in Christ, that we would have union with Jesus. One author simply says, he chose us in connection to Christ. Another theologian says, God put us and Christ together in his mind. He determined to make us, who didn't yet exist, his own children through the redeeming work of Christ, which hadn't taken place yet. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is both the foundation of our election, that, by, that way by which we have righteousness and can receive election, so he's our foundation, but he's also the agent through which the election takes place. In other words, he is intimately involved and tied to the whole process of God's choosing us. And the result is a miraculous election or choosing that declares the merits or the worthiness of Christ as both the foundation and the agent of choosing individuals to adoption. Being chosen in Christ means that we in ourselves were unworthy. We had no merits that somehow he looked down and said, yeah, that's a good one. We were unworthy in every single way but rather that Christ was worthy and that God was gracious to do this glorious work to us in him even in our context today these three verses you're going to notice if you take a look at those verses you're going to notice that you're going to notice that Paul ties each one of God's three actions to Jesus Christ here in verse 4 our election is in him in verse 5 our predestination is through Jesus Christ and at the end of verse 6, Paul says that he blessed us in the beloved. Notice that capitalization of the B there. In other words, he blessed us in Jesus. Jesus is the beloved, and we'll get to that. Simply put, Paul is making it crystal clear. He's stopping up every potential hole, he's seaming off every crack in any argument that there is no room for human worthiness in any way possible. He is making it clear that our election has nothing to do, with, nothing to do with what we could do or what we have been able to do. It is God's work, and He chooses us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But check out that next phrase. He didn't just choose us; He chose us with a purpose. He chose us with an end. He chose us to be something or to be a certain way. Verse four says, "Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love." God has not chosen us simply to be a Christian. That uh, the only thing that makes uh, this person different from a non-Christian is a mental assent to Christ, that they're a Christian. No, God has chosen a people for Himself to be holy and blameless before Him in love. And There are several things to note here. First the statement here it means that we were at one time then unholy and blameworthy without God's act of choosing us to himself. It means that there was uh, going to be a transfer from rebellion, this wicked state that we are in, to love and obedience and submission to Christ. God's purpose was to make a people for himself that perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Holy and blameless before him in love. Second, we should note that this purpose, that we should be holy and blameless, flies in the face of any sort of wicked attitude that we might have about election. Some have said, great, I'm elect. I'm safe in God's hands. I can really kind of do whatever I want to because, you know what? He's got me. It's okay. And therefore, treating God's sovereign choice as some sort of license to do what a person wants and even live a sinful lifestyle. Paul shows us very clearly. He says that we would be blameless and holy. He shows us clear that our election is for a purpose, that we should be made like Jesus Christ, holy and blameless before God in love. And then, third, if you're like me, you look at this statement and say, hmm, I know myself. I'm not very holy. I'm, I certainly am not blameless a lot of times. I don't look very much like Christ. I know I don't act like Christ a lot of times. I I know I don't think like Christ a lot of times. Is he saying that I am then not a Christian? Is that what he's saying since that's what we're supposed to be elect to? Remember, brothers and sisters, that we are in the process of sanctification and that we are progressively being made holy and blameless in Jesus Christ. There will be a day when we will be presented to God holy and blameless. But our lives here are a process of growing and trusting and becoming more like Christ. Remember Paul's encouraging words in this very book, in chapter 5. He says in verse 25-27, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Holy and blameless. He will do this work. Christ will. He is doing this work in us. He started it in eternity past, and he will complete it. We see this in other places. He talked to the Philippians that he began this. He will complete this work. But lastly, this lifestyle that we should be holy and blameless before him in love is characterized and coupled with love. Now, you'll see here that in your text, sometimes it's hooked to verse 5, sometimes it's hooked to verse 4. There's a lot of good conversation about this. I come down on the side that I think it's actually supposed to be connected here, that the way that we are to act And the way that we are to be elected to would be to be blameless and holy before him in love. Our responses to God, of course, are certainly to act out of duty and obedience. But along with it rings the ancient command for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Calvin said that love describes the believer who is chosen. It is an evidence of the fear of God and obedience to the whole law. But Paul uh, goes on to describe the working of this election. Now we read, if you looked at the next statement in verse five, we read it as an indicative, um, but it's actually a participle. It makes it nice and clear, but I wanna help us see this. All that means is that we should read verse five as a continuation really of the governing verb in verse four. That's all nerdy language, sorry about that, but this is what it should be. We read verse 4, and then when we get into 5, it should say something like this, having predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul is using another important theological word here, to predestine. To predestine. This is the idea of predetermining, uh, to decide upon a path beforehand, to set one on a course. Paul has already made it abundantly clear who was chosen? He said, he has chosen us. But now he turns to what we were chosen to. He's going to make it clear here that we are the ones who are chosen. The predestining though is a determination of one's destiny, where they are to go. Adoption as sons is the goal of our election. It isn't just a choosing to nothingness. We were uh, we were predestined to be saved. No, he makes it very clear here the divine goal of election is to bring us into a personal relationship with him, his children. This, guys, this, this should rock our world. We understand. You and I know who we are, we know who we were before we knew Christ. Paul is going to talk explicitly about this in the next chapter. In Ephesians 2, 1-3, we get an understanding of who we were and whose we were. Let me read verse 1-3. through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons, get that language, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You and I were once children of the devil, but God in his grace has predestined us to adoption as sons, not someone else's sons, his own sons, with full rights of sonship. But how how in the world did he do this? How is it possible for us to go from being wicked haters to adopted, inheriting sons? The answer, we know. And we would know this answer if we just look at the rest of Scripture. But here, Paul, of course, makes it very plain. The answer that he did this through Jesus Christ. By means of the work of Christ, he made our adoption as sons possible. Now, we understand that mankind has a big problem. We understand that we are against him, that we are by nature children of wrath. We know that there is absolutely nothing good or nothing spiritually alive in mankind. We understand total depravity, that all of mankind in Adam sinned against God and has actively rebelled against our righteous and just creator. In Romans 3, 9-12, Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, in other words, everyone in the world, are under sin. And then he quotes the Psalms. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless, unworthy. No one does good, not even one. There is no one who is righteous. There is no one who understands. There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks after God. We are dead in our trespasses against our perfect creator. God doesn't somehow uh, give himself the option to choose Or adopt the people who are good, the people who are righteous, the people who will choose to believe and live according to God's law. If that were so, it would require humanity to come to a place where they could somehow make themselves alive, make themselves understand, make themselves seek after God, so they might approach him with faith and good works without the aid of anyone else able to approach God by themselves for his mercy. As we will see in chapter 2, we need to ask ourselves, how dead is dead? This is how he describes us. Do we need God to do his work in us, or is there some spark in each of us, in everyone in humanity, that allows for us to come to God in faith? In Romans 8, Paul teaches that it is God who chooses us, who predestines us, who calls us, who justifies us, and who will one day glorify us. But from what we know about the gospel and the righteousness of God and his justice, we all know that God cannot be like that that unscrupulous janitor who kind of just brushes the sin underneath the rug and says, well, I just won't look at it. I'll just pretend it's not there. God is just and perfect and holy And there must be judgment for all sin against a righteous Creator. And so we know that He cannot choose and adopt us upon our own merit, as small as that merit may be, because we have none. None. Without Christ and His work applied to our account, we are eternally stained by our own heinous, wicked rebellion against our perfect and loving God. By ourselves, we would never seek after God. By ourselves, we would never believe the gospel. By ourselves, we would never be able to do one single good work. In short, Paul makes it abundantly clear, again, that our adoption can only be accomplished through Jesus Christ. Period. But there's more. God didn't go and do this great work of election and predestination to adoption begrudgingly. It wasn't as though he's like, well, I guess this is what happens. I guess this is who I get on my team. He didn't wait to see who would join his team and kind of shrug his shoulders and say, okay, this is who I've got. These are the ones that came to me in faith. Instead, Paul says that he did this predestining work according to the purpose or the pleasure of his will. Now, if you look at your Bible, you're going to see in, in the ESV there it's, that it says purpose. And that's fine. That's right. It's true. But the Greek word here, although it certainly is purpose, has the idea of a purpose that was one that, that, that brought God pleasure that it wasn't by constraint of someone else, but rather he had this as his purpose. It wasn't a necessary decision that was kind of put on top of him that he had to make. He wanted to make this. It pleased him to choose his people in this way. No one twisted God's arm or applied for this position of a chosen person. God is ultimately responsible for all of salvation history. And each step went as planned. He is not bound to the will of any other. He desired to do this. He willed it to happen, and he alone is free. We like to talk about free will of man, and, and it's right and it's a helpful way to have some kind of discussions and it's important discussion that we should have. But I think we need to be very careful and not kid ourselves that when we talk about that, it means that we hold God in a position where man is ultimately the free one to choose, not God. He does not leave it up to us. He predestines his children for adoption. And Paul makes it clear that this is done according to the good pleasure of his will, the purpose of his will. But lastly, in verse 6, we find Paul helping us approach this incredible truth. I mean, we've been preached that he has chosen us, that he's predestined, but now Paul is going to kind of step back and help us understand why he's saying it. What's all this for, Paul? Why have you taken the time to show us this incredible truth? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, if you look down in verse, I think it's 11 and 14, you're going to see a very similar phrase, to the praise of his glory. But here it's different and on purpose. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace. We're learning here, God chose us, having predestined us to adoption, to engender praise for God's glorious grace. With that first theological point being said, Paul is trying to help us understand that the whole nature of this gift, this blessing, is a gracious nature. That it is unmerited favor. And we are floored that God would choose, that he would predestine us to adoption as sons through no merit of our own. With this statement, he puts even more of an exclamation point on the end of the sentence, that in this process we have done nothing that is worthy of his blessing. And all worth and all honor and all praise is to be attributed to God alone. He drives it home even harder when he makes the final statement with which he blessed us in the beloved. Now, this is super cool. (laughs) The word that he uses here for blessed, if I could make it, uh, it is... what it actually is, it has the exact same root as grace. In other words, to pray, to the, he's saying something like this, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he graced us in the beloved. He's making his point. This whole thing, the whole nature of this choosing is a gracious nature, unmerited favor that is, has its roots in God alone. He is pointing out not just God's love for his people. He certainly is loving. That's certainly true. But here he is pointing by using this word to the nature of that love, a gracious love that is based on no merit of the recipient. You and I and all of God's people have been blessed in Christ due to no worth of our own. There wasn't something special about us that got God's attention. There wasn't something that made us better than everybody else by his choosing and According to the pleasure, the good pleasure and purpose of God's will, He chose us and predestined us to be sons. Lastly, though, we talked about this earlier a little bit. He says, In the Beloved. And you'll you'll see in our English translation that Beloved is a capital B. That's on purpose. It's the beautiful title for Christ. He is the supremely loved one. By who? Oh, by everyone? By God the most important. By Paul using it, we are seeing that it marks Christ off as the supreme object of the Father's love. He is the beloved. We see this in John. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Colossians 1.13 makes this very clear. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of who? His beloved Son. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. We who are united with Christ also receive this love that is unlike any other in the whole world. The love of the Father. Do you realize that because of our union with Christ, we experience this unprecedented love and we understand that we share in this incredible blessing. And so we finish these first few statements of the first spiritual blessing, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Now, there's much that we could and should draw from this. We are getting, again, like we said from the beginning, inundated with information and layer upon layer that we ought to say praises to God. But I think it's a little more appropriate for us to consider what's going on around us right now. If we're all uh, honest, the reason we're watching this video is that this quarantine is getting old real quick. It has become kind of old hat already. Unfortunately, it's becoming the norm, but not in a good way. Um, Things are ceasing to be novel and fun and new and different. We are realizing that this has infected hundreds of thousands of people and killed over 28,000 throughout the world. And Those are just the numbers from this morning. This is Saturday. That's Saturday morning. This is a real issue. People are dying, and we are not at the end of this yet. This is real. We know it. And our hearts are heavy with concern for our fellow image-bearers throughout the world. We are seeing another part of the curse of sin playing out in front of us. And these statistics can also cause us to have the struggle of worry. We worry about our own mortality. Will will we catch this virus and die, potentially? We worry about our health, and we worry about our fragility and our ability even to function in our families and take care of our families if we get sick. We worry about our finances. <laughs> the economy is tanking. I mean, our retirement accounts are plummeting and we aren't even sure if we will all have jobs if this thing continues to go on further and further. Some of us look at our jobs and wonder if uh, they're really necessary in a world where only the essentials are Are important to survive. How long will we be able to keep going with the reserves that we have? I mean, this may sound crazy, but like we have to sell our house and become subsistent farmers, and uh, you know, like depend on communal living to somehow survive. And I'm not trying to be funny. When we consider these things and go down these paths of thought, we understand that there's lots to worry about, lots of these things, and we're concerned about how, how all of this will affect. Our resources. But that's not all. We're settling into some new rhythms as our families, as individuals. We are getting used to the words canceled or suspended until further notice. And these things are so disheartening. Um, they can take a toll on our hearts and our expectations. We expect and look forward to these things. And then when it doesn't happen, there's a great amount of disappointment. Uh, of sadness. We know that our hope obviously isn't in upcoming events and special times together, but these things certainly make our demeanor and our apt attitude, the way this is going, far less optimistic. We become, to as, uh, as some will say, more realists because it is true. The things that are around us aren't all rosy. There are other things that we're getting used to. Some of you are working from home, something you've never done before. And now you have to somehow do the responsibilities of your work in the realm of your home. And it's like two worlds are colliding together where you have to have the responsibilities and and the duties of work while you work in the house. Um, Others of you are educating from home. Your children, if you have children who went to school, if you didn't homeschool before, are now in your home. And not for summer break. They're there to be educated. And now you're responsible, not just the proctor, really. You're responsible to make sure that they are doing their schooling, working. And some of you have both of those things aligning, where you're now working from home and your children have come home and all of these things are happening at once. And you're just trying to maintain sanity. And it isn't very fun. I'm not joking around about this stuff. We recognize how this is feeling. And with the last order from our governor, um, we are keeping our distance from basically everyone. You can't take the kids to the Y for uh, a swim or to do some activities. Uh, You can't take them to the movies uh, and check it out there and kind of get a break from your home situation. This has led to very different lifestyles for most of us, very different from what we're used to. And if we're all honest it can create an awful lot of stress in our hearts and in our homes, in our relationships. And living by these new constraints is difficult. Each of us has, in some way, entered into a lifestyle in one way or another that we weren't expecting. Each of us is dealing with new worries, new struggles, uh, new difficulties that can make things seriously difficult at times. I mean, it's, again, not like we're being persecuted from a communist regime, but we are certainly experiencing levels of suffering. My question, though, is how are we reacting? How is that making us think? How are you thinking about all these different situations and realms that you ought to rightly think about? We hurt together in this time. I mean, and we we look to God for our help. We cry out, how long, O oh Lord, will this be? How many people will die? How many people will struggle? How long will the effects of a broken economy happen because of this coronavirus? Psalm 46, 1-3 through three says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We hear these words and we are encouraged not to fear because God is our refuge, our strength, the one who is here helping in the midst of our trouble. We want to continue to remind one another of these things that we do not need to fear because we know the end of the story we know what god is doing and we know that none of this is taken by surprise but today after we have seen the glory of god's grace on display through ephesians 1 4-6 i want to ask you another question a very different question do you and i and the world deserve to live with the coronavirus By that, I mean, do we deserve to suffer the effects of the curse? Or do we deserve to live in struggle and misery with suffering and trials? Does humanity deserve to die? Now, please understand, I am not saying that this is some epic act of judgment that we are experiencing. I am not a prophet. I do not understand the mind of God. But it's important for us to sit back and recognize that we have taken God's common grace for granted. Recognizing that the sun and the very water that waters the earth and the stuff, the design that he made, that plants come up and give us food, this is all God's common grace to his creation. And I realized through my own time in the Word this week, as I see what is on display is God's grace, his saving grace specifically here, I realize that I take it for granted. I realize that I've come to expect God to do it. Almost as though I've done something, I fall into a category that deserves it. This is not true. God's grace is not based on you and me and somehow the laws that he's subjected to. God does what he wills. You and I can easily get used to God's grace. We take it for granted. But I want to encourage you, as we've looked at Ephesians 1, 4-6, afresh on the grace of God, knowing that it was nothing by you and me that caused God to do the electing work and predestining us for adoption as sons. But only by his good will did he do it through Jesus Christ, the righteous, the beloved. And in him now, we experience this first spiritual blessing that he has chosen us in him. And so we ought to, guys, we ought to consider and look at grace afresh and recognize that he didn't have to do it. That he gave it to us because he's awesome and good and loving and kind. We don't deserve it. We must look then at this grace for what it is. Astounding grace, surprising. We ought to be floored with the nature of his love for us and our undeserving posture toward him. And lastly, I want you to grasp the heights of your need for him. I want you to consider this week I want you to consider all the physical things that are going on. But as you see in the physical, a type, we have a far greater need, and that is our spiritual situation before the God of the universe that we have sinned against. And when we recognize this, it causes us to live a different way tomorrow, the rest of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, where we start to recognize God I need your grace. I need you to do something in my life that I can't do. I need you to speak into what's going on, not just to give me some tips. I need you to actually do something that I don't deserve. I need you to bless me. And the blessing that was given in the eternal election of God for his people is continued. And the nature of that gracious love that he gives, he gives to us today. So as you struggle with your own sin and you repent, there is grace, brothers and sisters. Admit it. You need it. I need it. The most important place that we could ever sit is understanding our need for Christ and His grace. When you go to prayer, it's not your righteousness that's on display. It's your need. It's understanding as you kneel before Him that you have to have what on, the, only, the thing that only He can provide for you. And so as we do this, may may I encourage us, brothers and sisters, to cry out to God for his grace. He is gracious and we need him today. We have needed him from the beginning and we will need him today and tomorrow and all the way through until our glorification as we sit and know him completely. So as James reminds us, let us humble ourselves. Let's understand our need for this grace and let us receive it With thanksgiving. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you for all that you have done. We recognize that your grace is unmerited favor on us who deserve nothing but your judgment. We thank you and ask that you would help us to see our need for daily grace. You have done it in your choosing us before the foundations of the world in Christ. But Lord, we need it today. May we not take your grace for granted or think somehow that we deserve it. But rather, Lord, make us humble, humble people before you, understanding, Lord, that you have chosen us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you have done, and we ask that you would shower your grace on us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.